Hi, and welcome to Military Crime and Punishment, the podcast that talks about our service members when they become less of what they could have been. Clayton Anthony Fountain. He was born in an Army hospital at Fort Benning, Georgia on the 12th of September, 1955. His mother, Ruth, was a housewife. His father, Raleigh, was a professional soldier. He was the firstborn of six children. At his father's home, he was trained to be a warrior from the time he could walk. The family moved about every two years, and like most Army brats, Fountain didn't have a place he could say he was from. His mother was passive, and reportedly his father was abusive. As the oldest child, responsibility was heaped on Fountain from a young age. He was the babysitter. Sometimes he cooked dinner, repaired clothes, and watched over his siblings. When his father was not deployed to Korea or Vietnam, the house was run like a military unit. His parents divorced in 1963 after his father beat the boy for damaging an extension cord. Both parents remarried and divorced several times. His mother became a drug addict. Once, while high, she shot him in the leg with a 22 pistol. It was passed off as an accident shooting at the hospital and, and at high school. Fountain's sanity was never questioned by the Bureau of Prisons Psychology Department, nor even the staff. He seemed to be well-rooted in reality. He was able to plan and carry out complex agendas he wished to. He was able to form alliances with others. He was outgoing and able to put others at ease. While in the military, his main frustration was that others didn't see things in black and white. To him, there was no gray. A man took orders and completed the task, or he gave orders and ensured that they were done correctly. He became angry if his troops were not as proficient in the military arts as he was. He was given the Myers-Briggs Personality Inventory. He received a rating of INFJ. This meant his personality was introvert, intuitive, feeling, and judging. Now this is a very rare personality combination, by the way. Introverts like a quiet environment to consider the possibilities. They prefer to communicate through non-face-to-face contacts such as writing or text messages. They usually think before they act. This is rare type in prison, when most act before they think. They tend to question why things are as they are. You have to give them a reason. He hated repetitive tasks, the lifeblood of prison experience. Intuitive types can take present circumstances and run the clock ahead. They take the available information and project the possible outcomes at a later time. This information is used to position himself to take the best possible advantages of future scenarios. Intuition of this type is a product of situational intelligence. The higher the IQ of the individual, the greater the possibility of an accurate forecast. Feeling types are good at perceiving the impact of their actions on others. In other words, if he wishes to cause you the most problems, he has the personality to use his resources to cause the most pain. Judging types are methodical planners. 
They set goals, break the task down into steps, and check them off the list as each one is finished. The INFJ personality in prison is the most dangerous for the guards to deal with. A methodical planner, with the discipline required to carry out his goals of maximum destruction, is not the usual convict. Most convicts tend to take advantage of a situation that exists at the moment. They act without thinking. Most have very little self-control. They lack the ability to set any kind of goal. This is the reason most men go to prison. They just drip through life with no purpose other than gratifying their desire of the moment without regard to the future consequences. They do not think before they act or plan ahead. This rare personality required an unprecedented level of security. There may be only a half dozen people who have ever been in a Bureau of Prisons with this level of evil and intelligence. That is why the response of authorities was also without precedence. A special cell buried deep in the heart of the prison medical facility was constructed with only one man in mind, Fountain. The director was determined that his reign of death would be over. He would be isolated from other humans. Further killings would be physically impossible if he was never able to again in the, be in the same room with anybody. That was what was done and it worked. Fountain was never able to physically harm another human again. The cell was constructed with total isolation in mind. It was at the end of a long hall of solitary confinement cells on the second floor. The last of these cells nearest to Fountain was vacated to further cut him off from outside communication. It had two windows covered with bars and a security screen. The outside window was made opaque so only light and dark showed through. The other window was clear and from his cell he could see a sterile tiled hallway with a telephone at the far wall. In the cell was a matching phone used to talk with people outside his cell. High up on the ceiling was a light that was on 24 hours a day. There was also a camera that could see every part of the cell and a two-way speaker that monitored and recorded all sound in the cell. Feeding was accomplished through a small sally port system such as used in some banks. A tray was put on a table and it spun 180 degrees and Fountain can pick up his tray. At the end of 30 minutes the process is reversed. If he fails to return the tray, he will not be fed again until the tray and all the plastic utensils are returned. In this manner it is possible, uh, impossible to touch the guards. His cell is monitored 24-7. To leave the narrow cell, a small door can be opened with a knob in the control center. On the other side of the door is a slightly larger area used to exercise for one hour per day. The cell contains a stainless steel sink and toilet, a bunk anchored to a concrete floor, and a small black and white television. The prisoner is allowed to have one cubic foot of books and papers. He is issued toothpaste and soap as needed, and a new toothbrush once every three months. Shaving soap and razor is given once a week and returned in 10 minutes checked and discarded by the guards. If it is necessary to enter Fountain's cell, he was double cuffed behind his back. He had two pairs of leg irons on. 
Further, he had an electric belt that would shock him with high voltage if he moved suddenly. When he received treatment for a medical or dental reason, his leg irons were secured to the floor to prevent him from moving more than a few inches. He was allowed contact only with the warden and a few select guards. Three years of his treatment had a desired effect. 16 January 1986 was the last written incident report in Fountain's file. He would not violate the rules again until his death in 2005. He quit smoking and never committed an act of violence against another human being again. On the 19th of April, 1992, Fountain was baptized into the Roman Catholic Church. He claims he found Jesus. He carried on a correspondence with a woman who wrote to Fountain about God after she saw a newspaper article about him. They wrote to each other from December of 89 until August of 92. At one point, they petitioned the warden to allow them to meet in person and marry. The warden denied the request because the two had no relationship prior to his incarceration and had never met in person. Fountain never did meet the woman. I have no idea what happened to her once she ended her correspondence with Fountain. This is not an isolated incident. Women, for some reason, are attracted to some of the vilest killers in the federal prison system. They write inmates and send them money. A few get approved to make prison visits in person. I once had a woman call me when I was in the message center. She asked me if I wanted to have a hot dinner and a woman tonight. I hung up on her. Prisoners are not allowed to receive federal education grants or loans. To relieve the boredom and gain a skill that he could use to justify parole, Fountain decided to pursue a bachelor degree in business and pre-law. His stated goal was parole, so he could attend law school. Fountain used the woman to fund his education. He also wrote to Father Robert of the Assumption Abbey near Ava, Missouri, to beg for money. He was able to get the father to request a parishioner to donate a typewriter to the prison for Fountain's use. When the typewriter broke after some months, the prison provided an antiquated computer word with word processor programs on it. Fountain was given a job of typing for $5 a month. That's right, $5 a month. In July of 92, Fountain used the computer to send a letter to the widow of the officer he murdered. He sent her the letter through the U.S. attorney. In it, he said that he was sending her $800, even though he was not required to. He also asked her forgiveness for killing her husband. There's no record of a reply. While at USP Marion, Fountain had finished his GED. Later at Springfield, he would finish his high school diploma. He taught himself to type so he could earn money. This would be a marketable skill on the outside as well as allow him to earn as much as $66 a month while locked up. He was denied entry into the Ph.D. program. He did get accepted into the Catholic Church's Religious Studies program and paid for it with donations from the local abbey, a scholarship of $1,000, and some direct donations of some monks. He earned $200 from the program that rewarded convicts for pointing out things that were a threat to safety and security. On two separate occasions, he made a metal and plastic shank that could kill.
He turned them into the warden and received his cash award. He never finished the postgraduate religious programs, you know, because he died. Fountain finished his bachelor's and used his contacts to pay for postgraduate work. All of this activity had one focus, the education, the expressed desire to become a Catholic priest, and the strict adherence to prison rules to make parole. He used the convict code to accomplish his goals. This was trust no one. The weak have no honor. People who show kindness are weak, and the weak should be exploited. The prison warden denied him the ability to be released into general population. Fountain was informed by the parole board that to have any hope of parole, he'd have to show he could maintain clear conduct in the presence of other prisoners. This was not possible while he was locked up in his own special isolation cage. Fountain used the administrative remedies process to request to be released from isolation. When that failed, he proceeded to file appeals of the unfavorable rulings. 20th of May, 2002, a new solitary confinement cell was finished at the medical center and Fountain was moved to the new, larger cell and recreation area. In February of 2004, the local abbot proposed to make Fountain a, quote, family brother, unquote, or what a lay person might refer to as a monk. He was accepted into the abbey at Ava, Missouri, shortly before his death in prison. He died in his sleep of an apparent heart attack. He was granted the right to be buried at the abbey, but his family chose to bury him at the feet of his father. At long last, father and son were rejoined, even if only after death. A week after his death, a monk from the abbey requested to visit Fountain's cell to pray for him. The request was denied. His mother outlived him. He served 29 years, 11 months, and 24 days. Now the other stuff is uh, some of his uh, more infamous activities that took place while he was at USP Marion and, and in other federal prisons. Uh, you know, he was the extremely well-trained unarmed fighter thanks to the Marine Corps. Now, I'll try to tell you about some of those incidences that made him one of the most feared members of the Aryan Brotherhood, a racist white supremacist organization. Now, it all started on the 22nd of November 1981. Silverstein and Fountain, the two Aryan Brotherhood members, attacked and strangled black convict Robert Marion Chappell in the control unit of the United States Penitentiary located at Marion, Illinois. Robert Marion Chappell, convict number 04244-158, was aged 42 at the time of his murder. He was killed sometime between 4.55 to 5.55 p.m. There were no guards observing the range at the time, so the exact time of the murder is unknown. The FBI and forensic uh, pathologists surmised the murder was committed by two individuals, each holding the end of a homemade rope. Chappelle had a habit of putting his pillow against the bars of his cell and sleeping that way. It didn't take a lot of stealth to put a loop around his neck. Silverstein and Fountain just had to hold the handle on their end of the rope, 
put a foot on the bars and pull the rope as tight as they could before tying the ends off. Then they could walk up and down the range while their victims strangled to death. Since the rope was cut off, blood flow to the brain and unconsciousness was less than 30 seconds and brain death was less than 10 minutes later. Incidents like this is the reason we stressed constant observation of convicts when they were out of their cells. The guards still had a lot to learn in the early 1980s at Marion. The murder of Chappelle by these two caused Raymond Cadillac Smith to threaten revenge against both Silverstein and Fountain. Chappelle was a DC black as was Smith. In prison, affiliation is first by race, then where the convict is from. Smith was a very strong convict, a rather bull of a man, more than capable of killing either Silverstein or Fountain. Fountain was terrified of Smith. He was aware that at some time in the future, Smith would have an opportunity to exact revenge for the killing of his friend. But not if Fountain killed Smith first. This is the basis of his claim of self-defense. Being too weak to overcome Smith by himself, Fountain had to find a way to get Silverstein to be in a position to help him murder Smith. It was fortunate that the control uh, unit lieutenant had ordered both Silverstein and Fountain to be housed upstairs on sea range. This range is the only one visible from the front door of the cell block. Since both these inmates were housed on sea range, it also meant that they could wreck together. Recreation in two cages about eight feet across the range walk from the cells. At the time of this incident, the cages each had a pull-up bar, an exercise bike, and a bar used to do other exercises on. Mostly recreation was done individually, meaning that the convict was in the wreck cage by himself. If two cons wished to wreck together, the control unit manager and lieutenant had to approve, and then if, if it was approved they could wreck together. Now this pair of convicts were put four men in their, it would put four men in their graves before the administration decided to split them up. But for now, they were allowed to wreck together because if it was denied, they would throw little temper tantrums which included things like break over 40 windows in a few minutes, set some fires, and flood the unit. Now when I mean flood the unit, what you do is you clog up your toilet and you just keep flushing it until it overflows and then you get as much water as possible all over the place. I've seen uh, I've seen it look like a cute little waterfall coming down the stairs before when they all get to doing it. Now what Fountain did was use a one inch piece of hacksaw blade to cut a metal bed frame in his cell. He made a knife called a shank in prison that was nine inches long, a half inch wide, and three eighths inch thick. The concrete floor of the unit was an effective grinding stone to sharpen them uh, into metal uh, shanks to a razor sharp killing edge. Some tape and cardboard to make a sheath and the weapon was ready for use. I used to hear convicts sharpening these weapons late at night, wondering who the intended victim was. Part of a cell inspection used to look for uh, sharpening marks on the concrete. The next thing to accomplish was to cut a hole in the wreck cage. 
The lower half of the walls of the cage was flat. We called it expanded metal. It was made of mild steel. Fountain used his small one-inch bit of hacksaw blade to put a hole in this wall. The hole he cut was a little over a foot wide by a foot and a half tall. He could not cut it all in a single wreck period. He concealed the cut with paint the prison gave him in art supplies and tape a convict stole from an officer when he wasn't looking. Now Fountain had the murder weapon and the means to get out onto the range. Next, he would have to get Silverstein into the wreck cage with him and Smith on the range alone. On the 27th of September 1982, at 7.30 in the evening, Fountain was up for wreck. He requested that Silverstein be allowed to wreck in the cage with him. As this was already approved and Silverstein consented, they were both put in the same cage on C range of H unit. This was a move that the unit line staff liked. When two convicts were able to get wreck at the same time, it meant that the recreation could be finished early and everybody could play spades in the office. Smith had finished his wreck period earlier in the shift and was due a shower. He was let out of a cell at 7.45 and locked into the shower. This was accomplished with no guards on the range. The two doors were opened and Smith just walked with his cup, towel, soap, and a long brass shank hidden under his towel. Smith had cut the long brass rod from a stainless steel toilet in his cell months earlier and had concealed it somewhere in the unit. Despite daily searches, the guards were unable to locate this rod or other parts of several toilets. These toilets have since been removed from the unit months before due to the convicts making weapons from the parts of them. Some of these rods have never been recovered and are still, presumably, in the prison somewhere. Stage is now set. All the actors are in place. Smith yelled at the guard watching the range that he was finished with the shower. At about 8, the guard opened the bars on the shower and Smith walked to the front of the range and asked the guard to fill his cup with hot water. The guard took the cup and walked about 15 feet to his right and filled the cup with steaming hot water. This is when Fountain made his move. He removed the plate he had cut in the wall in the wreck cage. He had the shank concealed in his pants. He took it out, still in the cardboard sheath, and squeezed out the hole onto the range. He took the shank out of his sheath, dropped it in front of cell 11, which was occupied. Fountain ran down the range toward the front where Smith had his back to him and was waiting on his hot water. Smith heard Fountain running and turned in his direction. He saw Fountain was armed and at the back of the range he saw Silverstein wiggling out of the wreck cage. Smith knew he had to defeat Fountain quickly or the two convicts would team up on him. He dropped his towel and completely naked, he rushed at Fountain. The two men met in front of the shower. Smith was able to stick his shank into Fountain's upper right chest. The two struggled and it looked for a moment that Smith might win as he stabbed Fountain uh, in the arms. But by this time, Silverstein had arrived. It was then Smith was distracted by the presence of Silverstein and Fountain stabbed him several more times. Silverstein grabbed Smith and tripped him, causing him to fall onto his back. While Fountain held the arm, Smith had his shank in. Silverstein punched Smith in the face. Silverstein stomped on Smith's hand, causing him to let go of his knife. Then he held Smith immobile, 
while Fountain stabbed Smith dozens of times. At this point, Smith was dazed and defenseless. Fountain and Silverstein stabbed Smith a total of 67 times. Silverstein used Smith's shank, while Fountain used the one he still had tied to his wrist. They rolled Smith over, and Silverstein delivered savage kicks to the side of the head while Fountain stabbed him over and over again. This was all witnessed by the staff who had responded to the guard's call for assistance. The entire attack took less than five minutes. The activities lieutenant, along with the unit manager, arrived in a unit in time to see Fountain and Silverstein still stabbing Smith on the floor. Several other staff were in the unit and watching the murder through the bars by this time. They all saw, saw Silverstein and Fountain take Smith by the arms and drag him five feet down the range away from the front grill. This is where the false rumor of dragging Smith up and down the ranges come from. The staff started to yell at Silverstein and Fountain to give up their weapons. This caused them to drop Smith's arms. Fountain started walking back to the, of the range and Silverstein bent over and stabbed Smith three times in the neck. After Silverstein stood up, he also began walking to the rear of the range. In the book, The Hothouse by Pete Early, it is said that they dragged the body up and down the range. This is not true. They were going to, but only got to drag him five feet to the view of cell number two. Silverstein walked up and down the range shaking hands and talking to the convicts in the cells on sea range. The white convicts, for the most part, congratulated Fountain on a good killing and shook his hand. They high-fived, laughed, and Fountain raised both hands in the air like a prize fighter who won the match. Silverstein made sure to threaten to do the same to anybody who disrespected the Aryan Brotherhood. A lieutenant who had arrived on the other side of the locked door ordered Fountain several times to give him the knife. Fountain responded with, it's over. Just a minute. He asked Silverstein twice if he was done. Fountain checked Smith's pulse first at his neck and then his wrist. Apparently he felt no pulse. It was then he untied the knife from his hand and passed it through the bars to the lieutenant. Silverstein was seen passing his shank to somebody in a cell. Fountain kicked a piece of flat metal that had been cut from the wreck cage under the grill of the officers on the other side. Silverstein was told to go into the shower. As he walked past the dead smith, he kicked him in the side and said, You punk, now tell me what you're going to do to me. The grill was opened by order of the lieutenant. Fountain was cuffed and moved from the range. Silverstein had all his clothes removed from him in the shower. He was given new clothes and both convicts were taken to the back of B range and put into the closed front cells we call boxcars. This killing started the race war that lasted almost my entire career with the Bureau of Prisons. There's been a lot of misinformation and speculation on what really happened to Cadillac Smith. This podcast was made with the assistance of the official records and people I know who witnessed it. Now, if you'd like to write to me personally about anything, you can at as the key turns at mail.com. And thanks for listening.